delight to have you here as we're in the middle of this series, Managing Our Finances God's Way. It's a seven-session series, and this is session three. We had an introductory session as well. So we'll be finishing, finishing this up at the end of May, and we hope you can come for the remainder of the, of the series. I want to cover some announcements, and then we'll get into the content of this particular session. We have some things that are coming up over the next few weeks that we want to make you aware of. This Friday is the Toledo Mudhens game. Every year in April or May, we go to a Mudhens game. We always have a blast, and we're looking forward to this Friday as well. We have a block of tickets for the Mudhens game, and those are available at the resource table. So if you need uh, tickets, you can buy those today, but you need to do that today because the game is Friday. It's Friday at 7 o'clock at the 5th uh, third stadium in uh, Toledo. Game starts at 7, and after the game, there's a fireworks display as, as well. So always a, always a good time, and we've got uh, a block of 100 tickets all in the same spot. So if you can make it, please do. That's this Friday. One week from Saturday is our next Newcomer's Brunch. And as that name suggests, it's for newcomers, and it's newcomers coming for brunch. Where do you come, newcomers? To our house for brunch. My wife makes a mean brunch. And uh, I enjoy having these because I get brunch. <laughs> but I also like getting to meet newcomers as well. So uh, we would love to have you over, really, and it gives us an opportunity to get to know you and you us in an informal setting. There's no program to it, certainly no obligation on your part to anything. It's just uh, helping us get to know each other better. If you had any questions you wanted to ask, I'd be happy to try to address them in that setting. But uh, it's just us inviting you to our house, really. Uh, 10 a.m. to noon on Saturday the 23rd. Saturday the 23rd. So if you can make it, then let me know or let Kim know so we can add you to the list just so she knows how much food to make. And then last but not least is June the 14th. Sunday the 14th is our next baptism. And that is for anyone who has not been baptized. And not being baptized means you have not been dunked in water. I mean, that's what scriptural baptism is. You are immersed in water to signify the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if, if you haven't done that, then uh, you need to according to the command of Jesus. And I know that's a strange rite, particularly if you didn't grow up in a church that baptizes that way. And uh, it's not just the way we do it, it's the way it was done, the only way it was ever done in the Bible, uh, because that's what it's to picture. And so if you are not accustomed to that, then that may seem very strange to you, but that's what we're here for, to try to explain those items to you. So please see me about that. If you'd like to know more about baptism, what qualifies one for baptism, then I'd love to sit down and talk to you about that, okay? So just catch me uh, this week or next or soon because the next baptism is on June the 14th, Sunday the 14th. All right, today is session number three, beginning on page 45. Session number three, page 45. And as we start, think about a guy who is going through the desert, and he has been out in the desert for days, and it is just scorching hot. And he has had no water, he's had no food, and you all know how that goes. You start to get delirious, you start to see uh, images and mirages and, uh, and uh, oases. And uh, this guy has done that several times, and it's been nothing but a figment of his imagination. But at one point he sees a palm tree, and he thinks it's water, and he gets to it, and lo and behold, 
uh, it is, but it's not only water, it's not just a pool of water like he expected, but it is uh, actually a well there. And there's a well, and next to the well there is a jar, and uh, there is a, a parchment with a note on it. And the note says, take this jar, and so he picks up the jar, and it's got water in it. But take the water and pour it into the well. Now, it'll tell why in just a second, but just picture yourself. You're dying of thirst, and it says pour it into the well. But you read on, and it says you pour it into the well because when you pour it into the well, it is going to go into this leather sack at the bottom of the well, which will prime that. And when you pump this well, it will provide all of the water you need. And the question is, do you believe that? What are you going to do with that water? And I tell that story because that is very similar to what the Bible, the way the Bible instructs us. You use the relatively little bit that you have in the way that God is instructed, and God will provide all that you need. But the question is, do I believe that? Am I willing to empty that jar on the belief, on the faith that God is going to do what he said in Scripture? And we're going to see what it is that God has said he will do with these three facts about biblical generosity, which are on page page 45. The first fact is this. God blesses generous people. God blesses generous people. Now, I've been putting these uh, words on the screen for you, and I have a PowerPoint session with all the words, but it's not on the screen. I have some elves who work for me that I don't pay anything. And so you get what you pay for. Sometimes you get your PowerPoint, sometimes you don't, okay? And so my PowerPoint is not on the uh, screen behind me, and so I'm sorry about that. But let me tell you the words that are supposed to go into those, those blanks. And the first one is God blesses generous people. God blesses generous people. How do we, why do we say that? Well, look at some of the passages that are listed there. The Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Give, and it will be given you, Jesus said. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Proverbs tells us a generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. Proverbs says again, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. And so God blesses generous people, and that's just four passages. Those could be multiplied numerous times throughout the scripture about the blessing that accrues to the one who follows God's instructions with regard to giving. Now, what does generous giving produce? I will give you those three blanks on page 45 and then comment a bit on that. Emotional happiness, emotional happiness, and spiritual holiness, emotional happiness, spiritual holiness, and material prosperity. Emotional happiness, spiritual holiness, material prosperity. Happiness, holiness, prosperity for the one who is blessed by following God's instructions with regard to giving. Emotional happiness, spiritual holiness, and material prosperity. Those three things. Now, as you, uh, as you fill in those blanks, you're thinking, 
Well, you should be a TV preacher saying that. So if I give to God, then I get a bunch of money back, right? And that's what that sounds like. And so I want to make sure it doesn't sound like that by the time you, by the time you leave. One of the hazards with using published material is that you fill in the blanks the way the publisher put it out. And my rule of thumb is if, a, if, a, if published material is 85% right and I can correct the other 15%, then I'll buy their stuff and I won't reinvent the wheel. And I say that to say there are times when you use somebody else's material, you're going to see something that should be worded differently. And this is one of those occasions. Because you can get the impression that if I follow God's rules, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have money. The problem with that is, if you were to read Hebrews chapter 10, which I encourage you to do, Hebrews chapter 10, at the end of Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, in fact, Hebrews chapter 10 comes before Hebrews chapter 11. I learned that in seminary. And and the reason I mention that is because Hebrews chapter 11 has a special place in Scripture. Most of you know what it's called, Faith's Hall of Fame. And so it's the passage that starts out with a definition of faith. faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things that have not been seen. And verse number 6 of Hebrews 11 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. And then it goes on to say, By faith Noah, by faith Moses, by faith Abraham. And all of these characters and kind of heroes of the faith did what they did because they believed. They had faith in the promises of God. Faith's Hall of Fame. But... Prior to that, what we don't read most often is Hebrews chapter 10. Most of us are familiar with chapter 11. But chapter 10 starts out with lesser known people who had all kinds of bad things happen to them. As a matter of fact, in verse 34 of Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about people who had their property confiscated because they followed Jesus. The TV preachers never tell you that part. If you give your life and give yourself, including your sustenance, to the Lord, you might have your, comp- your property confiscated. No TV preacher ever gets on and says, that's how I want to start. If you send your money to me, you might lose everything. But I'm honest. That's why I'm not a TV preacher. All right, let me stop. There are a couple good TV preachers, all right? but not one of the health and wealth types. And so I have no desire for you to come away thinking, if I follow these rules, these marvelous things are always going to happen to me. God does not teach that. In fact, you see many very faithful, good people who had difficult things happen to them, including with their finances. You get to the end of Hebrews chapter 11, and you've got just unnamed people of whom it is said that some were, I'm quoting, sawn in two. Others were destitute of food. That's what it says. That's faith's hall of fame. So these are good people of faith for whom the health and wealth prosperity thing didn't work out. So if you follow God's instructions, it is no guarantee that everything is going to go well with you in terms of your external circumstances. But let me ask you all a question. Even with those people who 
had those persecutions and those sorts of sufferings. Let me ask you, even though in their external circumstances it did not go well with them, ultimately did it go well with them? Those, those folks were and are richer than any of us. And they are blessed beyond any measure that in, than any of us could possibly imagine. Are they not? And so their faithfulness is rewarded by God. Now, if someone says that in their notes, faithfulness in all of God's directives, including giving, is rewarded by God, it just may be in the next life, not this one. I'm good with that. But do not come away with the notion that, which could be inferred from here, that if you do follow these rules, that all will go well with you in your external circumstances. Now, indeed, let's start with emotional happiness, emotional happiness. You, indeed, will have contentment if you will be a generous giver because you will have a view of finances that, such that they do not grip you and control you the way they do most people, including professing Christians. And so, indeed, you will have emotional happiness in the sense that you will be content. And godliness with contentment, the Bible tells us, 1 Timothy 3, is of great profit, is of great gain. Spiritual holiness. You will have spiritual holiness in the sense that greed does not grip you. And holiness means set apart, different. And so you will be different than the run-of-the-mill person in our culture. Again, including many professing Christians, you will be set apart, different, holy, in that you are not chasing the American dream. You're not gripped by greed if you're a generous giver. And so those two are certainly true. Material prosperity may or may not follow. The Bible does have many examples of that following, but it doesn't always follow. And so that's the one disclaimer that I wanted to make sure you're aware of. Now, how do I become a generous giver? If God wants me, though, to be a generous giver, whatever the outcome of that generous giving, how do I do that? And page 46 tells us that. If you turn to page 46, God provides a pathway, a pathway for this generosity that he requires. God provides a pathway for generous people. And there are five characteristics given in Scripture of generosity. And so we'll look at those. But as we do, here's the image that I want you to have in your mind. You're standing there in that desert at that oasis with the well. You've got the little jar. It's got the water in it. You're thirsty. And the question is, what am I going to do with that? Thing? Am I going to follow the pathway to generosity that's laid down in the parchment? The parchment says, do this. Am I willing to do that is the question. And God provides the pathway, the instructions for you and for me to become generous givers. What are those? Here are the five characteristics of biblical generosity. The first is biblical generosity gives the first and the best, first and best to God. Proverbs chapter 3, honor the Lord with your wealth, and then notice this, with the first fruits of all of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, your vats will brim over 
with new wine. So a couple things about that. Proverbs 3, you give of the first fruits, your barns are overflowing. This is my kind of religion. A guarantee. You give, you get. But some of you have taken our class on how to get the most out of your Bible. And we, the subtitle of that class is How to Get It Right. How to put a passage in its context. And if you've taken that class, you know that Proverbs are a particular category of Scripture. You've got parables, you've got narrative, you've got letters, you've got the Gospels, you've got Psalms, you have Proverbs. What's a proverb? A proverb is a proverbial truth. What's, what's a proverbial truth? An apple a day keeps the doctor away. If you eat an apple every day, you will never see the doctor. And you guys are laughing. Because what's the idea there? If you eat healthy, generally you'll be healthy. Right? Um, a, a stitch in time saves nine. This is all poor Richard's almanac. Okay? These are proverbs, just little pithy sayings that are generally true. Proverbs 22.6 in your Bible, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Again, that's general. A proverb is a general truth. Generally, that's true. But there are examples in Scripture itself of that actually not happening. Ezekiel chapter 18, if you care to jot it down, says that there are times when a righteous man will have a violent son. There are times when a violent man will have a righteous son. So it is not a legal guarantee. A proverb is never, has never intended to be a legal guarantee. It is a general truth. And it is generally true that the person who is practicing generosity, managing their finances, then a measure of prosperity will accrue to them. That is generally true. But notice what else Proverbs 3 says. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all of your crops. The principle that's being taught there is God does not get what's left over. God gets up front. We give to God from the harvest the first fruits of the harvest. The idea is we don't wait until the entire harvest comes in and then we decide what we want to use it on for ourselves and then see what's left over for God. The first fruits. Biblical generosity gives the first and the best to God. The first tenth, according to the first part of your Bible, belongs to God, and it is called a tithe, T-I-T-H-E, T-I-T-H-E, a tithe. And that's how you pronounce that, tithe. Now, most of you know that, but I used to work with a guy who fancied himself as a kind of a real estate mogul on the side. I mean, he was a working stiff like me, but he did real estate on the side. And he loved money. He loved getting as much money as he could out of our work, but also his real estate stuff on the side. And I still remember him telling me. He knew I was an aspiring pastor. I was going to seminary at the time. And he was saying, you know, I went to this one church, man. And he says, the pastor, I knew what that guy wanted. I knew what the pastor wanted from me. He wants that tiv. <laughs> no. All of that taught me a lesson about how people view pastors. You know, as I talked to people, I worked in the computer field for 20 years. And as I would talk to people, you would get that kind of stuff from people. You know, those guys are just after, after my money. That guy just wants the tith. Listen, I, don't, I personally don't care about your tith. 
or your tithe for that matter. The issue here is about you and God and your view toward what God has given you. Okay? And I try to make that clear every single week when we say, if you're here for the first time, don't feel like. If you're a guest, we don't, we're not after your money. You come in here, if you're new here, you got that book in front of you for free. It's our gift to you. And we don't pass the hat in this class. And when we do pass the hat, as it were, in our worship hour, it is that. It's an act of worship, a voluntary act of worship. It's not about me and what I want. It's about God and what God says. And that's what we want to get accurately. Okay? And so the notes say that a tenth called in the first part of your Bible a tithe belongs to the Lord. Now, this is, I think, the last time I will differ from the, from the notes. But my own view of what the New Testament teaches is there is not a, a law percentage of giving in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there was. You find the tithe, the tenth, mentioned a number of times, and there were all sorts of different offerings. If you were to take all of those offerings, the weekly offerings, the monthly offerings, the yearly offerings, you would actually wind up with 23 and a third percent each year. Every third year there was a tithe. Weekly, yearly, and every third year, 23 and a third percent. So we're going to take a vote to go back to the 23 and a third percent. All in favor? So it was actually more than 10% even to begin with. And more important, as you come to the New Testament, what the New Testament is all about is Jesus doing away with the law. The law is done. And so the legal requirements of the law are finished, including the 10% tithe, in my view. Now, 10% a good a good place for us to think about our giving is a good way for us to think about having a regular and systematic time and amount to give to the Lord. That's a very good practice. Many of us have been practicing it for many, of you, many years. And so I heartily recommend that. But it is not a law that God has given for the New Testament church. So how do you determine how much to give? That's going to be in some of the other principles that we're going to look at. Here's a second characteristic of biblical generosity. Biblical generosity is regular and it's systematic. Regular and systematic. First Corinthians chapter 16, notice what it says. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So the practice of the early church was first to meet together on a particular day of the week. That day of the week would be the day we're meeting. The day of the sun, according to the Romans, but known in Scripture as the first day of the week or the Lord's day. And why the first day of the week? How did the first day of the week become known as the Lord's day? Because it's the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And so as you read Matthew 28 and verse 1, it's on the first day of the week. And Mark chapter 16 and verse 2 it's the first day of the week that they go to the empty tomb. And Luke chapter 24 and verse 1. And John chapter 20 and verse 1. All four of the Gospels, it is on the first day of the week. Jesus rose, the first day of the week, Sunday, became known as the Lord's Day. And the day of worship, which had been used for centuries, the seventh day, Saturday, 
became the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, as a celebration of the fact that he's alive. And that's the way you find them then worshiping in the, in the first century. And then in the early centuries of the church, first day of the week. Now, I'm belaboring that for a few minutes for this reason. Every now and then you meet somebody who comes along and says that, uh, you know, the Council of Nicaea made up this first day of the week thing. And they're the ones who said it was a big church council and it was imposed upon the church that you meet the first day of the week. Well, how do I put this politely? That is nonsense. You find Christians gathering on the first day of the week and, and doing their business with God together on the first day of the week in Scripture itself. Further, guys like Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr lived at about the middle of the second century. That'd be about 150 A.D. We have some of Justin Martyr's writings. He tells us how Christians worshipped. One of the things he tells us that they, is that they would meet on the first day of the week long before the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. So if you get somebody who comes along and says, you know, you're worshiping on this pagan day because the Romans made you do it, then give them my phone number, okay? And so you have seventh day. What's a seventh day Adventist? Somebody who meets on the seventh day rather than the first day of the week. There was this radical change in the day of worship all because Jesus rose from the tomb that particular day. And it's on the first day of the week then, regular, that is, there's a set time where these offerings are taken, and it is also systematic, on the first day of every week. So it's not the first day when I feel like it. When I give, it's on the first day. It's on the first day of every week. Now, if you get paid monthly, then you can divide that up into four. You can then give it in a lump sum. But the point is, it's regularly given on the Lord's Day and in a systematic fashion is the pattern of Scripture. Thirdly, biblical generosity, C, down at the bottom of page 46, is proportional to our income. It isn't just about percentages. It's also about proportion. So you all were relieved when I said, hey, that 10% thing, that was in the first part of your Bible, and it's not in the second part of your Bible. That's the good news, I guess, if, if the good news is to keep as much for ourselves as possible. But here's then the bad news, the flip side of that, is that we are to give as much as we can, proportional to our income. The truth of the matter is that every person here, every person here, and I don't know everybody's economic circumstances, but all of us here have more disposable income, even in a lousy economy, than the people to whom 1 Corinthians was written in the first century. Average people didn't have bunches of disposable income. The idea that you have a large middle class, which most of us fit into, where after you're done paying for your food and your, and your housing and so on, you still have something left over is almost a unique time in history that you have large numbers of people like that. And it's then proportional to our income, which may mean it's more than 10% rather than less. Well, how do I know what proportion I should give? It's no set percentage then, but how do I know what proportion I should give? And that's the next characteristic. Top of page 47. Biblical generosity involves 
sacrifice. It involves sacrifice. And so if I could put C and D together, here's the way I'd like to do that. For those of you that are writing in your books, some of you are not because you heard me say they cost 14 bucks. So you're just browsing through the catalog and you're going to turn it back in. It's okay. But if you're writing in your books, at the bottom of page 46, biblical generosity is proportional to our, and I would just you know, take income out of there and say ability. Ability. But what's going to determine my ability? That's related to D at the top of page 47. Biblical generosity involves sacrifice. That is, if I am willing to sacrifice some lesser things for some greater things, I will have more ability to give. And the proportion then of what I give will be higher than it otherwise would have been if I'm willing to sacrifice some lesser things. Now, why this idea of sacrifice? Look at the top of page 47. Brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Notice the two words, extreme poverty. These believers were in, ex in extremely impoverished circumstances, but here, here's what the Bible says. Paul writes, verse 3, I testify that they gave as much as they were able, their ability, and even beyond. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. So here you have a number of people who are impoverished, certainly by our standards, they're impoverished. And even according to first century standards, we don't have this middle class idea. Their extreme poverty, nevertheless, they considered it, and notice the word at the end of that passage, a privilege to be involved in the work of the Lord through the giving of the sustenance that he had provided. And so how am I going to know what my proportional giving should be. It's going to be an individual decision. But that decision needs to be made with us aligning our expenses, including this principle of sacrifice, so that I have more to give. And you have an example in the Macedonian churches. They were willing to sacrifice so that they could be involved in this work. You have in the life of David. King David said, I insist on paying. And here's, the, here's why. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And the idea there is this, that giving should involve sacrifice because the thing toward which I'm giving is of greater value than the lesser things that I'm willing to, to give up. Here's a working definition of sacrifice. Sacrifice is simply this. Giving up lesser things for that which is greater. That's what sacrifice is. Giving up lesser things for that which is greater. It's Mother's Day. Do mothers sacrifice? You can't be a good mother without sacrifice. You can't. 
It's absolutely required. I'm not, you ladies all know that. And you gave up some things. You gave up sleep. You know, you gave up, you gave up time. Places you wanted to go. Things you wanted to do. You gave up. You sacrificed. Because there was something greater. The well-being of that child. You know, you, you, you're, you gave up your health in some cases. Because you're not sleeping and you're, and you're not able to take care of yourself like you used to because the baby demands full-time attention at, for that first year or that first two years, depending on the child. Sacrifice. There isn't a mother who's been close to what the calling of motherhood is about who hasn't had to sacrifice greatly. And so that definition fits. It's giving up lesser things for that which is greater. And now as you apply that then to, to money, to our income, to our giving, the idea of sacrifice is I'm willing to give up lesser things so that this money can be used for greater things. And as I determine then the proportion before God, that I am going to give, it's going to include this notion of giving up lesser things for this greater thing. The mission to which the Lord has called us. And then here's a fifth characteristic. Biblical generosity is thoughtful, it's voluntary, and it's worshipful. 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 When we take our offering every week during the worship hour, I say this is our time to worship the Lord through giving. You all have heard me say that, haven't you? And often we have it printed right in our program, as we do today. Worship through giving. Why? Because it is a, an act of worship when I give back to the Lord who has first given to me. Notice the verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance, <clears throat> excuse me, and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. In our remaining few minutes, I want to expound on that a bit. I want you to notice three phrases in that, in that passage. It says in verse 7, Each man should give what, and here's the phrase, he has decided, what he has decided. And so this is an issue of not a percentage, not a law. This is, a pers this is an issue of you before your God making a decision about what you're going to give. What you're willing to sacrifice in order to give to the greater cause. That's the first phrase. Here's the next phrase. Right after that it says, not reluctantly. This is voluntary. This is free will. This is because I want to do this, not because I have to do this. Not reluctantly. And then the last phrase is the last phrase of the passage. For God loves a cheerful giver. The word for 
here's why you should do all of this. Here's why you should do it not reluctantly. Here's why you should purpose in your heart to set aside a sum for the greater good, being willing to sacrifice lesser things for the greater. Here's why you should do that. For because God loves a cheerful giver. Now, you can read that phrase without asking the appropriate question. Why does God love a cheerful giver? What is, I mean, the bottom line is just the bottom line. I stuck my money in the plate. Who cares if I'm cheerful about it? You know, the money went to the missionary, and the missionary preached the word, and the person got saved. Who cares if I'm cheerful about it? The bottom line is the same. The work got done. Who cares if I'm cheerful about it? God apparently cares. God loves a cheerful giver. Notice, it's not God just loves a giver. God is not just interested in the bottom line. God's interested in the way we go about supplying the bottom line. God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Here's why. Because God desires and determines... Desires and deserves, I should say. Desires and deserves. To be the most important person in your life. And the reason God loves a cheerful giver is because the person who cheerfully, voluntarily, gives to the Lord is a person who is saying, Lord, you are more important than all this stuff. You are more important than all the lesser things. The reason God doesn't just care about the giving, but he cares about the attitude, disposition of the giver is because God desires and God deserves the full devotion, the full affection of those who are called by his name. That's why this is an issue of worship. Who or what do I worship? Who or what is most important to me? Well, how is all that going to happen? And we must finish. But I'm at the end anyway. How's all that going to happen? Here's how it's going to happen. Last fill in the blank, bottom of page 47. It begins with a step of faith. A step of faith. Back to the jar. Remember, you're in the desert. You're at the uh, oasis. You got the well. You're dying of thirst. Parchment says, pour the water into the well. That will prime the pump and it'll provide what you need. You're there, you've got that in your hand, and the question is, do you believe what the parchment said? Do you believe Philippians 4.19? And my God will supply all of your needs out of His riches in Christ Jesus. That's what the parchment says. And the question is, do I believe that? The bottom of page 47 then says, generosity begins with a step of faith. And you all know, if you've been here for any length of time, you know what the word faith means. Faith means belief. Same word. Exact same word in your New Testament. It begins with a step of belief. Yes, Lord, I believe this. Yes, Lord, I believe you're the most valuable person in the universe. Other things pale in comparison to you. They are lesser things. Therefore, I'm willing to give up lesser things for this greater thing. 
you and your cause. And yes, Lord, I believe that if I do what you tell me to do, that you will take care of me in the sense that you will provide what's best for me at any given moment of time. I might be in jail when that happens. But you'll take care of me. You'll sustain me. I say I might be in jail when that happens. I don't have anything to confess. Here's why I say that. I'm done. I quoted for you Philippians 4.19. But you all know when Paul wrote that where he was. My God will supply all of your needs. And he's chained to a Roman guard. He's under house arrest for preaching the gospel. But nonetheless, I have learned, he says in verse 10 of chapter 4, the secret of being content in any and every situation. Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And the question is, do you believe that? And if you do, you step forward and you say, Lord, you've given me this amount of income. I'm going to prioritize you and your work, and on a regular and systematic basis, I'm going to give toward you and your work, valuing you more than these lesser things. That's an act of worship, something that is pleasing to our God, because it says he's of supreme value to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we could spend this time looking at this issue of how money just... What the old version called filthy lucre. Unrighteous mammon. The stuff that can become our God so easily. Thank you, Lord, for this time to remind us that these things are to be used for what really matters. And not just what really matters, who really matters. And that's always you. And it's always what you care about. And Lord, you desire our full devotion and affection and love and energies. And you deserve all of that as well, as the glorious God that you are. And so, Lord, help me and help us not to be drawn away and allured by the stuff. And help us, Lord, to be willing to put aside some lesser things so that we can cheerfully give to the greatest thing, your honor, your glory, and your mission in this world. Go with us this week as we seek to do the homework that's attached to this lesson. Help us to... Put these things into practice in our lives. Grant us, Lord, joy. Grant us safety as we serve you this week. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.